Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons and to the second in our lunchtime talks about surgery through the ages. Um, it's a great pleasure, particularly given his travel problems this morning, to um, welcome Drew Birch to speak for us today um, on radical politics, revolutionary surgery and English poets. And I'm going to break with convention as Drewin has um, kindly agreed to introduce himself to you all today. So thank you very much. <coughs> um, yeah, well, hello. Thank you very much for coming. Um, yes, yeah, so someone on my train decided to assault someone else, so there was a, a much delay uh, a, a, as a result. Um, uh, my name is Drew Birch. I'm uh, uh, delighted to be here uh, for a number of reasons, um, one of which is that I vividly remember coming and researching this book while sitting roughly in the middle of all of these seats. Uh, at a time when I wasn't allowed to raise my voice or speak or disturb the other people. So it's quite nice to come back and be allowed to talk freely. Um, and it's also uh, uh, very nice coming into the Royal College of Surgeons, given that I am, in fact, a physician, which gives me an extra little bit of thrill. I feel like I'm invading the territory here. Um, and w w what I'll try and do is tell you um, uh, a little bit about Ashley Cooper, a little bit about how I came across him, a little bit about my book, and, and, and maybe a little bit about anything you want. And I do find it very helpful when I give talks if people interrupt me, which I know can be quite difficult to do, but, but please do interrupt. I, 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 I quite enjoy jumping from one thing to another, so do ask me questions. Equally, if you think I've jumped too far, do stop me and, and, and bring me back. Um, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, Ashley Paston Cooper um, was born in Norfolk in 1768 um, to a very traditional family, a church and king family. Um, his uh, father was a, a member of the Church of England who wrote books, um, published his sermons, uh, they, they were very fine, upstanding, traditional, conservative sermons. Um, his father was also somewhat given to riches and vanity and um, making a good appearance. And the gentleman's quarterly uh, commented on this, uh, that, that the Reverend Samuel Cooper perhaps paid a little bit too much attention to his coach and horses and his dress uh, than to his congregation. Um, he made a big point of driving to his services in a coach and four, despite the fact that he, he pretty much lived next door to the church at which he was preaching. Um, so he liked to make an entrance. Uh, uh, Ashley's mother um, um, w was actually a far more successful writer than his father. Um, and, and she wrote... Um, uh, epistolary books, books of letters, novels in the form of letters, that were initially anonymous, um, but were uh, terrifically successful. They, they far outsold her husband's sermons, and, and, and they are, for a, anyone who wants to, to look them up, um, uh, awful. Uh, in my view, agonizingly sentimental. Um, uh, 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 but they were very, very popular in their day. Um, uh, one of them that perhaps I'll refer back to was called The Exemplary Mother, and it was about a wonderful, upstanding, conservative mother who saved her son from slipping into a life of godless, left-leaning, democratic debauchery. Um, it, it, it has some relevance uh, to, to, to late, later life, Ashley's later life. Um, 
Ashley really grew up in Norfolk, went to London um, uh, around the time of his 16th birthday and ended up becoming phenomenally famous, um, fabulously wealthy um, and successful socially, financially, scientifically, um, every way you care to think of. Um, and my first real interest in him was not so much because he had been famous, it was because his fame seemed to vanish. And that intrigued me. Why should someone who was in his day incredibly famous suddenly sort of slip out of history? And the way I came across him uh, was, uh, and, uh, I will, I'll, I'll jump through a few slides, um, might come back. Uh, we're, we're studying the writings of this man, and I know that doesn't project well, and, and you can't read it um, particularly, but perhaps what you can see uh, down the left-hand side, is, these are, this is somebody's notes taken in one of Astley's lectures on surgery. Um, uh, see if I can make any out. The septum of the nose is formed of the... Well, so the anatomical notes. But you might be able to see that down the left-hand side there are some doodles. And they're, they're doodles of flowers. Um, and this was the notebook of this man, John Keats. Um, and, and so there were notes taken um, by Keats when attending Astley's lectures. And they're the, actually the only surviving notes we have of Keats's time uh, training. And Keats trained initially as uh, what was called an apothecary when he started, but by the time he qualified was becoming called a general practitioner, a GP. That was in Edmonton, outside London. And then Keats moved uh, into London to study at Guy's and Thomas's. And there were two possible reasons for doing this. One was that the exam to become a GP had suddenly become more formalised. So you actually had to do six months' attendance at a hospital. But Keats didn't do six months' attendance. He signed on for a year. And there's only one reason to sign on for a year's attendance. And uh, 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 for a gentleman who didn't have a degree, so he couldn't be a physician. Um, and so the only reason for doing a year's training in the hospital was to become a surgeon. So Keats very specifically left his job as, a, as an apothecary in order to fully train up as a surgeon. Um, and he trained under Astley Cooper, and I came across Astley Cooper through reading biographies of Keats, in whom Cooper comes across as a huge figure, both in the general life of Britain in the day, but also in Keats's personal life. And there is absolutely no doubt that the two of them knew each other, knew each other probably reasonably well, and also that Cooper uh, specifically aided Keats in his career. We don't know how they knew each other, um, and we don't know what contact they had, but certainly Cooper arranged for, for, for one of Keats's first uh, student residences near the hospital. And, and Keats fairly clearly worshipped Cooper, both for his surgical success and for his particular politics, and also, I think, I think with great confidence, for something in Cooper's emotional engagement with the world that Keats found inspiring and that made him want to be a surgeon and a surgeon like Cooper. And it's really the meaning of, of, of Cooper's emotional involvement with surgery of his day that I want to talk about a bit. Um, 
sitting on the train on the way down just before the assault, uh, a, a nice couple next to me were talking about literary festivals, and they said, oh, I don't, I don't see the point of them, that writers can be quite good at writing, but they're, they're not very good at speaking. Um, so I'll see if I can get across a bit of what I enjoyed about writing the book into to, to talking about it. Um, this is, this is uh, uh, here we go, a, a bit of poetry. Um, One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. Sweet is the law which nature brings, our meddling intellect. Sorry. Uh, sweet is the law which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things. We murder to dissect. Uh, that's Wordsworth um, uh, from, from uh, The Tables Turned. And uh, it's a, a famous quote that we murder to dissect, particularly when people are thinking of surgeons of this era. And what I want to argue, and what I hope my book argues, is that in some ways it was wholly inappropriate. In some ways, for Keats, studying surgery was exactly the right training. And uh, it was the right training because he saw in men like Cooper the opposite of murdering to dissect. He saw people in, in the quest of... Um, something with an aesthetic, something with beauty to it, something that a passionate, idealistic, brave young man might devote his life to. Um, and, and perhaps that becomes a little clearer if I start off with the alternative view, which... So, uh, Cooper, when he, he went to London, studied at a time where surgeons had a very limited supply of bodies to practice upon, but were becoming ever more interested in practicing on them. You had to learn uh, on corpses, Cooper in later life said, he who has not mangled the dead must mangle the living. You know, you had a choice, you destroyed corpses or you destroyed your patients, and it was very clear which one uh, uh, an idealistic surgeon should, should aim to do. Um, but the corpses were hard to come by. There was a gift of uh, four to six from the state that was of executed criminals, that that could be added to by judges as a further punishment after execution, punish you further by having you dissected. But beyond that, you had to steal the bodies. Um, uh, the poorer students uh, had to steal the bodies themselves. They could be expensive, um, 10 guineas for an adult body. Uh, children and fetuses were priced by the inch. Um, uh, but the richer students would buy their bodies, and Cooper was certainly rich enough to do that. Of interest, I think he stole them by himself anyway. Not because he had to, but for the adventure of doing it. Um, so uh, this, is, this is a quote now from um, someone who was studying surgery around Cooper's time, a little bit later in Paris, the composer Hector Berlioz. Um, who saw medicine in, and surgery entirely in the terms of murdering to dissect, that these surgeons were destroying the beauty of life in order to pursue their thoughtless, unimaginative, mechanistic goals. So this is Berlioz talking about his first experiences of entering the dissecting room where a surgeon learnt his trade. When I entered that fearful human charnel house, littered with fragments of limbs, and saw the ghastly faces and cloven heads, the bloody cesspools in which we stood, with its reeking atmosphere, 
the swarms of sparrows fighting for scrapings and rats in the corners gnawing bleeding vertebrae. Such a feeling of horror possessed me that I leapt out of the window. I fled home as though death and all his hideous crew were at my heels. It was 24 hours before I recovered from the shock, utterly refusing to hear the words anatomy, dissection, medicine, and firmly resolved to die rather than entering the career that had been forced upon me. Now, Cooper, his great joy as a gutsy, charismatic, physically adventurous young man in a large family, and forgive me, I think he was the sixth or seventh child, it's now slipped my memory, um, his, his, the clear destination for him was the military. It would have suited his gifts, his physical adventurousness, his ability to lead people absolutely perfectly. And I think it's what he wanted to do. Um, and he really, by arrangement of his church and king parents, whose values he was starting to diverge from in his teenage years, got enrolled as a surgical student in London with his uncle. And he was delinquent, wasn't interested. Um, his uncle at one stage found him walking along the, the London streets dressed up as an army officer. You know, if he couldn't do it, he could pretend to do it and just have the swagger. Um, so, so what was in it for him to capture his imagination? It didn't capture Berlioz's. Why should this young man who loved the, the outdoors, who, 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 who loved uh, untrammeled adventure, why should he not feel exactly the way Berlioz did about being confined in an absolutely disgusting dissecting room? A dissecting room where the corpses were stolen, where you couldn't dissect in summer because they rotted too quickly, where you had no antiseptics, um, so if you pricked your finger and uh, a little fragment of flesh from your corpse entered in, you could be dead in 24, 48 hours, as indeed was the first Charles Darwin when he studied in Edinburgh, Erasmus Darwin's son and the, the uncle of the other Charles Darwin. Um, what, what, what should have appealed to him? This is Berlioz going back to the dissecting room despite what he said, he went back about 24 hours later. Um, I consented to return to the hospital and face the dread scene once more. How strange. I now felt merely cold disgust at the sight of the same things that had before filled me with such horror. I had become as callous to the revolting scene as a veteran soldier. It was all over. I even found some pleasure in rummaging in the gaping breast of an unfortunate corpse for the lungs with which to feed the winged inhabitants of that charming place. Well done, cried my friend Robert laughing. You are growing quite humane, feeding the little birds. And my bounty extends to all nature, I answered, throwing a shoulder blade to a great rat that was staring at me with famished eyes. So, so this really is murdering to dissect that surgery and the training that you had to undergo to be a surgeon was nothing more than something disgusting, something um, that the men who had been barber surgeons uh, only a few years before really did because they were socially or imaginatively incapable of doing anything finer, incapable of pursuing, for example, the music that Berlioz was so in love with. And I think it's really that perception of surgery of the day that was partly why Cooper slipped um, from the public mind so much. He, he, to give you an example of the fame, uh, in Elizabeth Gaskell's Life of, uh, Life of Bronte, um, the, the, the Bronte children are sitting around their fireside in, in Howarth, 
and they are playing an imaginary game where they have an island and each of the children can people the island with the two uh, two citizens of the world they feel are the most important and the most interesting and and it, this is a family without particular medical connections without London connections uh, a long way away from the, the 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 worlds of London surgery and Branwell Bronte uh, the, the the one boy picks as his two men the Duke of Wellington and Ashley Cooper you know so he had that sort of fame he was uh, and infamy you know uh, so where, where did it go? And, and partly I think it went because the idea that he was engaged in something passionate or romantic, as Berlioz was when he was a musician, or as Keats was when he was a poet, that sort of faded away. And I think it faded away uh, entirely inappropriately, actually. Um, let me give you uh, an alternative uh, piece of Wordsworth. Um, and this is really the seeds of the idea that these surgeons in these fearful charnel houses could have been doing something better than the gross activities that, that Berlioz saw them engaged in. This is from Wordsworth's preface to the lyrical ballads. Um, so an absolutely key publication. Um, uh, Whenever we sympathise with pain, says Wordsworth, it will be found that the sympathy is produced and carried on by subtle combinations with pleasure. The man of science, Whatever difficulties and disgusts he may have had to struggle with, knows and feels this. However painful may be the objects with which the anatomist's knowledge is connected, he feels that his knowledge is pleasure, and where he has no pleasure, he has no knowledge. In other words, meaning made beauty. Or, to take it a bit closer to, 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 to Cooper, um, uh, beauty is truth and truth is beauty. And if you are digging out truths, you are engaged in doing something beautiful, no matter what the smells of the rotting corpses around you. Um, it, this is William Hazlitt, so the same period, very much the same romantic movement as Wordsworth. Um, the anatomist is delighted with a coloured plate, a picture, conveying the exact appearance of the progress of certain diseases or of the internal parts and dissections of the human body. We have known a professor as much enraptured with the delineation of the different stages of vaccination as a florist with a bed of tulips. The objects give as much pleasure to the professional inquirer as they do pain to the uninitiated. The learned man is struck with the beauty of the coats of the stomach laid bare or contemplates with eager curiosity the transverse section of the brain the number of their parts, their distinctions, connections, structure, uses, in short, an entire new set of ideas which occupies the mind of the serious student and overcomes their sense of pain and repugnance, which are otherwise the only feelings that the sight of dead and mangled bodies present to ordinary men. So there was at the time the idea that being engaged in surgical science could be part of this great romantic movement this great hunt for truth and beauty in the world. Um, what was it that changed Cooper when he came to London as a teenager uh, and started out as a delinquent, uninterested student of his uncle? And very clearly, it was something to do with the man who he was living with, who was not his uncle, who was a uh, surgical colleague of his uncle. So that rather than... Uh, uh, studying with another Cooper, he studied with a man named William Klein. Actually, I can 
Uh, that's, uh, I don't know, you might have noticed his picture. This is uh, the picture that's hanging in the hall downstairs. Uh, this is uh, Astley Paston Cooper. Uh, at his height, uh, he remained uh, a, a charismatic, handsome, dashing, and uh, wonderfully vain man. Um, was greatly enamoured of his appearance, um, with uh, reportedly good reason. He was a striking figure. Um, uh, this is Klein, who was the man he lodged with rather than his, his uncle. And when his apprenticeship with his uncle fell apart, he actually signed on. So he came down to London in the summer for the start of the um, uh, university, with well, the surgical season. Um, and by Christmas, really, his apprenticeship had dissolved. He had almost slipped into a life of underworld delinquency in London, but was giving it a go as Klein's apprentice. Not very successfully, still no interest in surgery. But what interested him were Klein's politics. And this was the other big thread in Cooper's life, that Klein's politics, rather than being church and king, were revolutionary. And Klein was one of the small but growing number of democratic agitators um, uh, in London at that period. John Horne Took was a very good friend of Klein's, um, who was perhaps one of the leading... Um, well, Democratic agitators. Pitt, of course, was also amongst them until he became prime minister and immediately swapped to deep conservatism. Um, uh, and, and Cooper grew very interested in, in, in the politics, the idea that the church and the king and the establishment perhaps were ripe for change, and accompanying them, the idea that one's religious beliefs should not necessarily be those of one's forebears and Klein was a dissenter. Um, uh, and actually, there was quite a, a focus of dissenting religion amongst leading academics. And that's the wrong word, because I specifically don't mean those people who had posts at Oxford and Cambridge, who in a way weren't academics in the way we would see them now, that they were not engaged in research. Oxford and Cambridge were just training houses for the Church of England. But the people who were actually doing cutting-edge science in Edinburgh, in London, um, uh, abroad, there was uh, dissenting religionists were overrepresented, And I think there was something about the mindset of being willing to question inherited beliefs, whether they were about the anatomy of the human body or the political structure of societies or um, uh, the meaning of the Bible. The, the, these things went together very much. And Cooper got interested in, 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 in radical politics um, uh, around the, the time of Christmas when he first um, went to London in the 1780s. Um, after that, there is the story of Klein coming home one day in disgust that Cooper has not bothered again to turn up for his dissecting class. And Klein, rather than taking Cooper to the corpse, takes the corpse to Cooper and walks into his room, throws down a human arm on the table in front of him and demands that he gets down to work and dissects it. And Cooper falls on the arm with relish, dissects it and falls in love. And from that point forward, is absolutely and passionately in love with dissecting, with learning about the human body, with surgery. And now, the story, as I'm sure it's obvious from the way I'm telling it, I think it's too good to be true. But I also think that doesn't matter. 
that that was the story that Cooper believed about his youth. That was the story that the people he knew believed about his, his youth. So in some way, it was true to them. Uh, quite what relationship it had with the actual events when Klein may or may not have come home with a human arm, we can't know. But for them, it captured something of the emotional truth of how Astley Cooper changed from being a delinquent young man who wanted physical adventure and a bit of glamour and had no interest in surgery through to being someone who went on to become the greatest surgeon of his age. So he fell in love. I think that much is clear. Uh, and perhaps we all tend, when we look back, to mythologise the time when we first fell in love. It's very difficult to look back on it clearly. Um, he, 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 he developed rapidly into a, a, a keen surgical student. He attended the lectures of John Hunter with enough passion and relish that having attended the course one year, he went back the following year and attended exactly the same course of lectures. Um, and rather wonderfully stuck up his hand in, in one of the second course of lectures and said, excuse me, you said something today, Mr. Hunter. Last year you said something totally different. So he, he was taking his notes with that good. And Hunter replied, well, I should, I should hope so. If I haven't learnt something new since last year, I would be desperately disappointed. And, you know, I think it, that lesson, as much as the facts of what he learnt from Hunter, were what motivated him. The idea that there was this flowering field of knowledge that he could... Uh, uh, I'm looking for a, for, for a horticultural analogy, really, to follow up from Hazlitt's mention of the bed of tulips. I can't think of one, but there is one later in life, actually, where Cooper is attending the wards of his hospital and someone who is watching him compares him to a florist attending their beds, watching what flowers are coming up, taking care of them so that they can see what develops. Um, so there is that thread of analogy of, of growing things, of creative things, the opposite of murdering to dissect and destroying something by cutting it apart. Um, inspired by Hunter, uh, Cooper began his own programme of experiments um, on corpses, um, on the corpses of animals, and on living animals. And he discovered pretty quickly that he was able to steal animals, um, that uh, it was rather easy to take home somebody's pet. Um, and he later discovered that it was even easier to organise servants um, and bribe them per dog or cat that was delivered to your attic. Um, and he, his experiments were horrific. Um, I mean, breaking bones to see how they healed, trying to set the bones. Um, there is one uh, uh, where he ties off the urethra, the tube uh, from the leading out of the bladder, in, in, a, in a rabbit. And he ties it off and waits to see what happens. But of course, no anaesthetics, even for people, let alone for the rabbits. Um, and it's entirely predictable what happens if you tie off the urethra of a rabbit or of anything else. That after a while, its bladder gets so full, its bladder bursts, um, which is very painful. The urine floods into the abdominal cavity, and you die of um, uh, the chemical injury and of the sepsis and of the trauma of your bladder bursting. And I was pretty sure, but couldn't find it, so I couldn't put it in my book, that, that, that I had come across uh, a mention of, of, of Caligula um, uh, executing um, people in that fashion, purely on the basis that the extreme pain of it uh, uh, gave him pleasure. Um, 
But certainly Cooper was willing to indulge in things that were uh, phenomenally painful and disgusting to the majority of society around him. What did that mean for him? Where, where did that fit into this business of, is, is he doing something lovely, beautiful, or is he doing something disgusting? Um, he became more and more involved in revolutionary politics during this period. And when he married, he married it in 1791, doing very well, as the, the Cooper men um, uh, tended to do. Um, they all married very well. Um, uh, he uh, decided the next year that he would take his wife on honeymoon uh, to Paris, which, uh, of course, seems a very reasonable thing to do. And uh, his, his first biographer, uh, a nephew of his called Bransby Cooper, uh, uh, commented that this, it was perfectly reasonable. He'd never been to the continent. Of course, he would like to see Paris. Um, so they, they, they went to Paris. Um, it was 1792. So uh, this is a bit like in the middle of, of the Cold War, saying that one is going to Moscow because it's got some interesting art museums. You know, you, you do not go unless you have a political reason for going. And quite clearly, I think, um, this was uh, the Coopers um, consummating their marriage. This was uh, an act of dedication of what they thought his life was going to be, professionally and politically. And he went to Paris to study surgery and to study politics. And he... Uh, spent half the time attending operations, half the time attending talks in the National Assembly. He was well-connected. He was well-connected with the London Democrats, so he turned up with letters of introduction. He turned up with the right credentials to do this. Um, but he didn't go just because he'd never seen Paris. Um, uh, uh, and, and he was there in, in, in 1792 at the height of the horrors. He got, uh, they landed uh, near Calais, um, at the end of May 1792, uh, got to Paris, um, I think about six days later, and were there through the summer as things got worse and worse and the butchery uh, grew more and more inflamed and, and the whole atmosphere more explosive. Wonderful experience for a surgeon. Still, battlefields are great places for surgeons to learn their trade. You know, you, you don't have to rob too many graveyards if people are coming in as mangled as you could wish to dream of. Um, but it, it grew a more and more dangerous place, um, and a more and more dangerous place to be English. And he and his wife, who was heavily pregnant by that stage, had a narrow escape. Both um, at particular moments, Cooper was caught up in the... Um, uh, the riots of the um, massacre at the Tuileries Gardens when the Swiss guards were uh, uh, butchered, managed just about to make it home alive to his wife in the hotel where they sat by the window and watched uh, some of the Swiss guards going by outside uh, and being butchered outside and then watched bits of the Swiss guards being paraded along outside. Um, and then he returned the next day to the Tuileries Gardens to have a good look at the carnage and look at the corpses. Um, and they managed to get away, narrowly, um, and he came back with his delight in 
blood and gore and surgery undiminished and his interest in revolutionary politics undiminished. So a very admirable form of idealism um, which let him believe that although the French Revolution was now something horrible and revolting, that that didn't mean that democracy and freedom, the things that the French Revolution had started off proclaiming but clearly was not pursuing, it didn't mean that those things were revolting or worth giving up on. And uh, as perhaps a token of his commitment to surgery and his willingness to take great physical risks and his willingness to put at risk those people around him, like his pregnant wife, he left Paris uh, with a collection of his favourite French body parts as souvenirs. So, uh, souvenirs, sorry, that's too light a term. If you go and see the museum there, the idea that by collecting specimens you would advance learning was very real. So there was some deep commitment to bringing back these body parts, but it was a risky time to travel from, from Paris to London. You, and to be discovered in the process of this, this journey that you were taking with you French body parts, that was not going to make your life any safer. So terrifically idealistic, terrifically willing to run risks and to put people at risk. Um, excuse me. And I think that comes across looking at his mature life as an operating surgeon as perhaps its defining characteristic, a willingness to run risks, uh, to put up with danger, to put up with physical pain, and a willingness to tolerate all of these things for himself and to tolerate them for others. Um, where I have a very brief quote. Um, uh, Ashley Cooper was willing to operate on people without warning and without consent. Go to see him in his consulting rooms and you might just get jumped on, literally. Um, Sir, said one of Astley's surprised patients, as an unheralded operation suddenly began. You had no right to do that without consulting me. God bless my soul. Sir, the pain is intolerable. If you had asked me, I don't think I should have submitted. The very reason, replied Astley, that I considered it right to think for you. So extreme paternalism. Extreme paternalism. Um, uh, we would be horrified by a surgeon doing that today. And he'd be sued too. Uh, and he would be sued very promptly. Uh, well, actually, it wouldn't be the civil action, I think, that he would be most worried about. It would be the criminal action for assault. Um, what was the alternative? I think that's the interesting thing. And the alternative is actually very clear. He went to see his uncle perform an operation. Operations were rare. Surgeons did not perform them often. John Hunter said that it was the last desperate refuge of a surgeon was to take someone to theatre. Hopefully, I, I don't know if my surgical colleagues would still say that they would feel that way, that you don't take someone to surgery unless you absolutely have to. But Hunter would turn white and vomit before an operation with fear and with horror of what he was going to do. To cut someone open without anaesthetic 
without antisepsis or asepsis, in the full knowledge that they would probably die and die horribly, this was not something that most surgeons enjoyed. They hated it. Cooper loved it. He, he relished it. The showmanship, the putting up with pain, the panache of doing it and doing it well, adored it. Um, and I think adored it with extra relish because other people didn't. Um, he, he, his uncle Cooper uh, he, was due to operate uh, on, on a man and remove his leg for a, a cancer of his leg. So an essential operation saved the man's life. Packed operating theatre, big audience. Um, there's Cooper Senior, um, ready, nervous, feeling a bit nauseous, nauseated, um, not looking forward to it. The patient walks in, gets up on the operating table, um, takes one look at the bone saw and says, no way, and runs. And Cooper Senior says, thank God he's gone. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what Astley would have regarded as an utter failure of surgical spirit, of idealism, of manliness, and an utter failure of humanity. That man needed the operation to save his life. He did not have the courage to go through with it willingly. It was therefore the surgeon's job to have the courage for him and to tie him down and operate on him um, uh, whether he said yes to it or not. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm pursuing the theme of physical pain. As I do, hopefully, actually with some relish in the book, because I was trying to get, capture the relish that Astley felt for pursuing pain in the service of something else, uh, in the service here, hopefully, of imaginatively recreating your life, uh, with his idea, in the service of saving lives. Um, uh, I, this, is, this is Astley writing... Uh, um, about uh, cancer of the penis. Um, there are various, in the book, most of my examples are, are of diseases of the peripheries of the human body. Well, the reason for that is not a particular morbid interest in them, but because those were the bits surgeons could have access to. Inside the chest, inside the head, inside the abdomen, you couldn't really touch. So it was the peripheries that you could do something about. You opened up those other bits of people and they would not survive. Um, the only means, Cooper wrote, by which the effects of this dreadful malady can be averted consist in the early removal of the diseased portion of the penis. The operation is dreadfully painful, but it lasts only for a moment. And then he goes on to say, well, what happens if you don't do it? What happens if you don't put someone through that pain and you don't put yourself through the unpleasantness of doing that operation? The penis continues ulcerating until that part which is naturally pendulous becomes destroyed, occasioning retention of urine. Exactly the same thing that happened to the rabbit. Retention of urine and great difficulty in its discharge at other times. The urine passing in various directions, because you haven't got a proper outflow tract, squirts everywhere, excoriates the scrotum, you know, it chemically dissolves the skin of the scrotum. This leads to a most painful but lingering termination of existence. So that was the price for moral failure. That was the price for not having the courage to operate on people 
whether they wanted you to or not. And there's a lovely example, which isn't in the book, of a young Chinese man who travelled all the way from China to London as this great capital of surgical learning, which it was, um, to have uh, a, a huge testicular tumour operated on, a tumour that he was literally having to carry in a wheelbarrow. And he said to his two surgeons, who were not Cooper, he said the one thing, through a translator, the one thing that he wanted was to preserve his genitals. He was a young man, you know, and he wanted his genitals preserved. And they agreed to try and do that. And Cooper spoke with them before the operation and said, you are wrong. This, again, this is, this is a moral and a surgical failing. You are wrong to go along with his wishes. You should go against them. And they weren't having any of it. And in a very public, hugely attended, hugely popular operation, there was uh, an extended and lengthy uh, dissection of, of this man's genitals in an effort to spare his penis. Um, it lasted for about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, it was um, unthinkably painful, and he died. And uh, I would say that Cooper was right. The... the, the courageous, the wise, the humane thing was to ignore this man's wishes and to uh, do what was best for him because you were in a position to judge and he was not. Um, how, how am I doing for time? This, oh, uh, I thought, yeah. Uh, all right. um, one of, oh, thank you, one of the Cooper's surgical ascendancy really just carried on going all through his life in a number of fields. Um, scientific innovation, and he was early on made a, a fellow of the Royal Society and received the Copley Medal for uh, that year's leading contribution to science um, with, with uh, an operation that was characteristically uh, experimental, agonisingly painful and surprisingly successful. So, um, he made a number of um, anatomical discoveries that aided surgery um, and a number of operative discoveries, particularly pioneering uh, surgery, uh, vascular surgery, surgery of aneurysms, tying off dilated blood vessels at the back of the knee, um, which had been done before, but perhaps not as well, and for the very first time in the neck, tying off the carotid artery, and for the very first time, um, uh, and it was something for which he was vastly famous and vastly infamous, tying off the aorta in someone who was entirely awake um, uh, 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 and in agony and, um, uh, uh, and, and defecating from fear and pain at the time. Ashley entered the peritoneum with his fingernail, um, proudly announced to the assembled crowd that he had secured the aorta around his ligature um, and all blind, all without being able to see what he was doing. And the aorta is in the um, uh, pathology museum at Guy's and he got it exactly right. He got the thread on in exactly the right place. Um, the man died, but, uh, and there was huge public discussion about why Cooper had done the operation. What was the meaning? What was the emotional meaning of this operation? Was it vaingloriousness? Was it self-serving? goes to the heart of who he was and I think although he clearly slipped over into vanity and sadism at various points in his life 
I think there is no doubt that he carried out that operation because he thought there was a chance of it saving this man's life and it was the only chance that man had. And I think it was a noble and a brave thing to do and that this was the sort of moral courage that Keats saw in him and that Keats saw not just in surgery but in poetry as well, that both were about facing up to pain. Why do you write poetry? Keats was asked by one of his friends in one of his letters. And he replies, because women get cancer. You know, because life is horrible, the only brave thing to do is to face up to that and engage with it, poetically or surgically. Um, so so, so uh, there were various impressive um, successes in, in, in Cooper's life. One of the interesting changes um, that I go into is his utter abandonment of his democratic politics. Um, that in common with a number of others, after the, uh, the repressive acts that Pitt brought into force in 1794, um, he, he really abandoned his democratic ideals, abandoned them initially as things that he could usefully and actively um, pursue, and abandoned them later on as things that he actually believed in and became a close personal friend of the Duke of Wellington, of Lord Liverpool, of George III, George IV, um, wrote in an admiring, in an unbelievably admiring way of um, uh, uh, some of these people, particularly um, uh, the Prince Regent. Um, I, I found it remarkable looking back how foully rude the times had been um, uh, uh, about uh, George IV. Um, uh, after his death, there is no monarch whose passing will be so unlamented by the people. You know, an incredible way to speak about anyone just after they've died, but particularly your monarch. Um, uh, and Cooper wrote admiringly of this man, as well as dissecting him and um, uh, 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 helping to embalm him. Um, so that's one of the, the, the other sources of interest in his life, is why did he make that change? The change, really, that you see Wordsworth making as well, from becoming a left-leaning democratic activist to becoming a well-off, successful, generally lauded member of the establishment. And again, what was the moral meaning of that? What was the emotional meaning of that for Cooper? It was something I found quite interesting. Now, I believe I meant to stop at 45 minutes to allow time for questions, so perhaps that's a reasonable point to do it at. Is that... Yeah, I see a nod. So, can I take any questions? Um, yes, I must admit that's and um, you know, I, uh, these are a few of them. Um, I, I, I am unable always to um, correctly distance guys and St Thomas's in my head. Uh, I suppose part of my excuse for that is that in the period in which I know them, which is not now, um, it, it, you know, it's the start of the 19th century, they were much closer together than they are now physically, um, but it's also, I'm afraid, just not being a London medic that, that, that I, I, I do erroneously group them together. So I apologise for, for, for ignoring one of the two hospitals. Yeah, I was just wondering what the scene's relationship with the body snatchers, because I understand they're being 
Yeah, it was a yeah, it was a it was a huge part of his life and a huge source of his power and of his infamy. And infamy was very useful, a very useful form of celebrity, I think, and a form of power. Um, and he, he was the king of the body snatchers and with a very interesting relationship with them that he went from snatching his own bodies through to organising a huge international network of body snatchers. Bransby Cooper, his nephew, is on the, on, in the Peninsula War um, in Portugal and in Spain. There's a, uh, somebody calls on the door of his tent and he sees a rough-looking young man and says, what do you want? And the man says, your uncle sent us, Astley sent us. And, and Bransby said, well, what did he send you for? Teeth. And it wasn't just after teeth, he was after good body parts to take home from the battlefields for Astley. Here's a lovely example of some trauma and gunshot wounds, burn, awful healing, gangrene. Um, uh, he, he body snatched with wonderful success. And one of the things he was very good at was keeping track of all of his ex-patients so that when they died, the local surgeon, the local apothecary would know, Astley would be alerted and in the night some men would come um, and surgically very wise he he did long-term follow-ups of his operations he got the post-mortem results uh, with a cheerful disregard for whether someone wanted him to um, and that really exploded into him being the first witness and one of the prime movers uh, when the, the house of the parliament called a select committee in 1832 to consider what they would do about body snatching. And, it, uh, and Cooper um, stood in front of them and made two key arguments. The first one was uh, the cajoling argument. Uh, and he, that, that quote that I used earlier, he, he said to them then, he who does not mangle the dead must mangle the living. You want someone who's practiced on corpses when you get ill, I'm doing this for your benefit. Um, uh, uh, and alongside that carrot, um, he, he, he also said, uh, looking at the assembled uh, members of parliament and the, uh, 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 the lords, there is no man, whatever his status in life, uh, whose body I cannot obtain after his death if I wish. Um, you can enhance the price. You cannot stop me getting the body. Um, so he was saying to them, either you give me the body to the poor or I'll take whoever I please and I might take you. Um, uh, Ruth Richardson's book, Death, Dissection and the Destitute, talks about how being dissected after death changes at that period from being a punishment for crime, you know, rather than just being executed. If your, your murder was particularly horrible, you'd be executed and dissected. It becomes a punishment for being poor and lonely when you die. So that's certainly true, but the upside was burking disappeared and body snatching disappeared because they suddenly had a, a licit supply. If you were unclaimed, surgeons got you. If you couldn't afford a burial, surgeons got you. But it was never, I mean, because I thought body snatching was illegal. Oh, the whole time. Right, so he was financing the illegal activity. Completely. And at one stage was arrested. Got arrested or? He was arrested, he went to see his, uh, his friend, I can't remember, was it Lord Mayor, so someone senior, and uh, gone. So. He was powerful. They couldn't touch him. They could touch the people who worked for him, and the body snatchers would be locked up. And very interestingly, and I think this was part of his success, and part of his, why he was successful as a human being, was that when they were locked up, when they were punished, when they went mad, when they got sick, when they became alcoholics, he continued to look after them financially. He looked after their families. 
Um, so an incredible humane attitude towards these men, who then, in front of the Houses of Parliament, he said they are the filth and dregs of society, and if they could, they would sell my body for dissection in an instance. Oh, and one of the interesting things is how hip hypocritical was he about dissection? Not very much. He um, was happy to dissect his friends. He couldn't bring himself to dissect his only daughter, who was heartbroken after her death, but he had her dissected all the same. Not quite dissected, I'm using the words in their modern term. He had autopsies performed, which was different to being dissected. When you were, it was a limited study with some respect, with some dignity. When you were dissected, then you have Berlioz feeding your shoulder blade to a rat. The surgeons would do whatever they wanted with your body. Um, so, but, and then when he died, he made sure he was buried in a, 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 a stone sarcophagus inside a stone sarcophagus <laughs> to make it difficult. Sorry. Um, it, it, that's actually easy to answer because not at all, I think, is the answer. And the, it, also in the book is the story of him being completely perplexed when he gets called to see George III. Why, why George III, who was very happy with him a few days before, suddenly regards him with horror. And only when he gets home does his friend point out to him that he didn't wash his hands after going from his morning dissection and, um, and operating. And he'd just gone with blood on his hands to meet the king. Um, uh, so they... <laughs> They knew that there was something contagious about death, but so clearly there were other things going on that it didn't result in a germ theory. You know, he, they knew that a confined, stifling atmosphere was bad. They knew that pricking your finger with uh, bits of the dead was bad, but lots of people who did it were fine. Um, the, 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 the most wonderful way to trace this thinking really is purple fever, childbed fever, the, the often fatal infection that women would get after giving birth. So really a wound infection of the womb. And they knew that sometimes this seemed to be spread by a surgeon from surgeon to surgeon. But they also knew that when that surgeon washed their hands, it didn't seem to do anything. And that other surgeons didn't spread this disease. And so we find it puzzling now, why did they not think of good hygiene, but actually there were lots of good reasons why it wasn't obvious. In his lifetime, um, uh, pretty much nothing happened. It's, it's tantalizing to think about how close people came. There's a book just coming out by Mike Jay called The Atmosphere of Heaven that I thoroughly recommend that overlaps with Richard Holmes's book, The Age of Wonder, which is also very good, about Humphrey Davies experiments with gases in Bristol and really um, discovering laughing gas. Um, and, uh, you know, they had anesthesia in front of them, and it was just so imaginatively impossible to picture surgery without pain that they, it just didn't occur to them to use it. And the first anesthetics were, were, were five years after Cooper died, and then Lister sometime after for, for the idea that of being clean is something more than just putting on a smock coat over your, your, your suit. Is that a? Yes, it's really okay. Sorry, at the, at the back, I saw a hand first.
Yeah, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I mean, you're, you're certainly absolutely right that Hunter uh, did huge amounts for popular teal aneurysms. Um, I, I do think Cooper um, went further. He certainly went further with other uh, aneurysm surgery. Um, Hunter had talked about doing carotids, but never quite did it. Um, yes, they did do things to make operations possible. It's very interesting why they didn't do more. You know, they had agents, that, they had opium, they had alcohol. They were very reluctant to use those, those things in, in operations. And it wasn't because they hadn't thought of them. That they, you know, often it was, they felt that pain, in the same way that they felt pus, pus was laudable pus. Pus was so routine after an operation that you expected it, that pain was felt to be essential for recovery. Uh, it was stimulating. Uh, but yes, I accept your point. Uh, there, there are several. I assume you mean the one supporting the breast. That's, uh, do we have a, sir, we must have surgeons here who... Uh, uh, it was a question about Cooper's ligament. And uh, as, as a physician, the main one I know of is the supporting ligament of the breast. But I think there is also another ligament named after him. Is that correct? There is. There, 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 are, there, there are various bits. Why? Um, normally because he's the first person to properly describe them. But that doesn't always follow. Um, I believe he was actually the first person to describe what's called a Duputron's contracture. But it's named after Duputron. But... <laughs> Oh, they were very well. They, they, they um, uh, when when Duputron, uh, said he, he he was there in Paris when Cooper was there in 1792, and they got on very well. And when Duputron later visited him uh, uh, and embarrassed him in front of his surgical colleagues in London by warmly greeting him and kissing Cooper, and Cooper, red faced, said, "Well, you have got your own back. For when I was in Paris, I kissed your daughter." So they're, 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 yes, they they knew each other well. Sorry, I I saw it. Yes, uh, so, sorry, sorry, I did. Um, I mean, I think really he was buried by Victorian sentimentality and political correctness. And um, the, the, the main accomplice in that was his nephew, a man called Bransby Cooper, who had many fine qualities um, and deeply worshipped his uncle, absolutely adored him, and as a result, really whitewashed his life in an attempt to make it fit the Victorian ideal. He wrote his biography in 1843. And I think it destroyed all of the things that were actually interesting about Cooper to people. You know, it really tried to get rid of his politics. It tried to get rid of much of the horror of the surgery. It made some mention of the body snatching because it just, he couldn't get away with not doing it because it was so well known. But he really made Cooper seem a flat figure. Um, I, I think that was, that was probably the main reason, along with the triumph of this idea of, of murdering to dissect. The, the idea that, which we still see in the idea of Keats being this effete person who drifted away from surgery because he wasn't really interested in it. He was interested in the imagination and he couldn't stand blood. Utterly untrue. 
passionately interested in making the world a better place. And for him, Apollo, the god of poetry and of healing, w was his, his idol. So, but I think the idea that these surgeons were part of the Romantic movement was lost, and they were lost with it. You mean purely for his surgical innovations? No, 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 I think it was the man. And you know, he, he, I think his greatest impact on human health was actually in terms of education, was in the, in the books on, on, on anatomy that he published in raising the standard of surgical education. That was what made the most difference to most people. Um, it had a huge influence on the war. This was partly why he had such power with the government, because he was involved in training so many of the battlefield and naval surgeons um, who were essential to have a functioning military um, presence. Um, so, no, his surgical innovations, while they are fascinating, I think were not his greatest gift or his greatest triumph or responsible for his fame. Yeah, yeah sure, you, you, you tell me. Yeah, if you like. So, yeah, my recent book is um, it was a book called Taking the Medicine, which is a book about. Well, there's the, the old idea, which we've known about for ages, that, that up and before 1930, if you were sick, going to see a doctor was a bad move. Doctors killed far more people than they helped. Um, and that gradually changed with um, antibiotics, with um, better surgery. Um, well, surgery certainly led the way before us physicians caught up with drugs that actually worked. My, my book's really a history not about the technological innovations, the discovery of penicillin, the, the uh, discovery of various other common drugs like aspirin, but really about the discovery of technique and, and why it was that, that doctors were so far behind in scientific method. They saw themselves as scientists and they weren't. They were underpinned by science and physiology, but when it came to working out whether a treatment worked, they never did an experiment. They just did the treatment, decided that it worked, and launched off on a career killing all their patients because it didn't. So it's really about, I mean, eventually the rise of the randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial, but at a more basic level, just about the rise of humility amongst the medical profession, um, and just testing the drugs that we use and how that has revolutionised healthcare such that going to see a doctor now I think is almost always a good thing. So, and I think that's a story that people don't understand because we still don't understand the nature of evidence well. And sorry, in answer to your other question, I'm a physician in Oxford uh, and I'm on holiday today. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm sure he's as on holiday and perhaps not in too keen a no, train again. Um, if you do have any questions that you weren't able to, to ask in the open uh, forum, then please do come and see him afterwards. So thank you, thank you very much, Joe. Right. Thank you. Yes, he took less than 20 was there. He,